There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. The Pence subpoena. What really happened between Trump and his vice president in the days leading up to January 6th? And could this be a signal that we are nearing the end of the special counsel investigation of Donald Trump? Also tonight, reproductive rights under threat. Again, the right-wing Trump-nominated judge who could single-handedly ban abortion pills nationwide. Plus, students in Alabama said they were told to censor their Black History Month program and leave out all the uncomfortable stuff like slavery and civil rights as the right continues to target black history. And we begin tonight with former former Vice President Mike Pence weighing his response to a new subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith. That subpoena is related to the investigation into Donald Trump's failed attempts to stay in power after losing his bid for re-election in 2020, according to a source familiar with the matter. Pence is the highest level person in Trump's orbit to face a subpoena and perhaps the single most important witness to what actually happened in the lead up to and on the day of January 6th, aside from Donald Trump himself. You, You must remember that Trump's entire plan to try to overturn the election and our democracy with it, relied on his second-in-command's willingness to play along and not certify certain states' electoral votes. While Pence had spent four years looking like a bobblehead, offering that loving, obedient gaze to nearly everything Trump asked of him, what we've learned over the last two years is that the pressure campaign waged on Pence to go along with Trump's coup attempt turned out to be a bridge too far. Though Trump did at least think about it. I mean, we know that Pence sought the advice of former Vice President Dan Quayle over whether he could actually overturn the election if he had the illegal authority to do it. According to Bob Woodward and Robert Costa in their book, Peril, Quayle told Pence, Mike, you have no flexibility on this. None. Zero. Forget it. Put it away. You don't know the position I'm in, Pence said. I do know the position you're in. I also know what the law is. You listen to the parliamentarian. That's all you do. You have no power. Now, we know Pence himself has publicly shared how the mastermind behind this plot, John Eastman, didn't even fully buy into it himself, describing an Oval Office meeting between them and Trump on January 4th, claiming, quote, I turned to the president who was distracted and said, Mr. President, did you hear that? Even your lawyer doesn't think I have the authority to return electoral votes. And we know that when the New York Times reported on Pence's response the next day, Trump put out a statement, not only calling it fake news, but claiming that he and Pence were in total agreement that Pence did indeed have the power to act. As we learned from the January 6th committee hearings, that was a surprise to Pence and his team. We were shocked 
and disappointed uh, because whoever had written and put that statement out, it was categorically untrue. We know the pressure only intensified in those final hours before Congress was to certify the votes. That morning, Trump and Pence had one final call before Pence headed off to the Capitol, and it was anything but civil. It was a different tone than I'd heard him take um, with the vice president before. The word that she relayed to that the president called the vice president, I apologize for being impolite, but do you remember what she said her father called him? The P word. We know the pressure continued when Trump spoke at his rally on the ellipse. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president and you are the happiest people. I just spoke to Mike. I said, Mike, that doesn't take courage. What takes courage is to do nothing. That takes courage. And then we're stuck with a president who lost the election by a lot. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. Because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. And we know that adding to that ongoing pressure were the threats coming from Trump's own supporters that he unleashed on the Capitol. And we know that even as Pence came within 40 feet of those same insurrectionists who wanted to hang him, he refused to leave the building, knowing that it would allow the certification to be stopped, at least temporarily. And I understood that the vice president had refused to get into uh, the car. Um, the, The head of his Secret Service detail, Tim, had said, I assure you, we're not going to drive out of the building without your permission. And the vice president had said something to the effect of, Tim, I know you, I trust you, but you're not the one behind the wheel. And that brings us to what we don't know. What else was said between Pence and his former boss? What else did Pence witness as he participated in all of these meetings? That is apparently what Jack Smith is hoping to find out. The answers to those questions could have very serious legal and political implications for Trump. And we have to be careful here that we do not know if this brings us closer to an actual indictment of Trump, because it it kind of feels like we've been down this road before. However, as former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance points out, we could be getting to the very end of the process at the very least. And joining me now is Olivia Troy, former senior advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, and Nick Ackerman, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Thank you both for being here. Olivia, I do want to start with you. I mean, Mike Pence is somebody who has said in the past that the January 6th committee was not entitled to his testimony, that he wasn't standing in the way of anyone else doing it, but they're not entitled to it. Um, do you expect him to try to fight this subpoena? Because he's also written a book. I mean, he's put a lot of this out there already. But what do you make of the subpoena uh, as somebody who worked for him? Yeah, hi, Joy. Uh, th- you know, I think this subpoena is critical. I think it gives him some political talk cover, so to speak, especially as he eyes 2024, because I think he will run. Uh, and I think this is sort of, it, it, it paves the way for him to say, well, you know, legally, I have to come forward. I should comply. So I do kind of see a path for him to do that. But I will say this, just because he complies with it does not mean that he's going to be rather forthcoming in whatever he says. I think he keeps his cards very close to his chest. 
And I think it's going to take further compelling for him to divulge more information, depending on what it is that they're looking for. And let me come to the table here uh, with you, Nick, because Mike Pence, in some ways, I mean, in, 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 I mean, in every way, is, is the potential victim here. But he also did go along with it to a certain extent. I mean, at one point, he's talking to Dan Quayle, according to this book, right. Peril, and he says, well, you know, there's some stuff out here in Arizona. And, you know, the response from Quayle is, man, I live in Arizona. There's nothing out here. So he was entertaining going along with it, which implies that he knew something about the plot. Oh, I think the whole plot was all geared towards Mike Pence. I mean, the fake electors, that was all geared towards what would be given to Mike Pence. Uh, The business about putting in a puppet attorney general that would sign a letter that would go to uh, the legislature in in Arizona saying that the election was rigged and Georgia saying it was rigged. Um, Everything that Donald Trump did was all geared at one point to the idea that Mike Pence would actually get up there and send those votes back to the states because of a finding that there was fraud in the election, all of which was false. Right. So he is a critical witness. And there is no way under the sun that any prosecutor in good conscience could either decide to indict or decide not to indict unless he first questions Mike Pence extremely thoroughly in a grand jury. He's got to take him through the entire time period, all of the conversations in minute detail. There's no hiding behind executive privilege here. I mean, that issue does not apply. The Supreme Court dealt with that in 1974 in Watergate. Um, The government is entitled in a criminal investigation to every man's evidence. uh, And that certainly includes Mike Pence. And I think what you're going to see is he's going to go into that grand jury and he's going to be there for a long long time. time. And, you know, Olivia, what what do you expect him to do? I mean, knowing him um, and having worked for him, he wants to run for president. He still wants the support of the Republican base, much of which is still very tied to Donald Trump. But he also is somebody who Donald Trump completely turned on on January 6th. And we don't know if it was before or just on January. I mean, he literally was posting threatening tweets about Mike Pence that Cassidy Hutchinson and others testified put Mike Pence in even more danger because there was an armed mob already busting into the Capitol and he still wouldn't stop. Is Mike Pence the type of person who will say, you know what, my loyalty is gone. I'm going to tell the whole truth and not risk anything for this man anymore. Yeah, you know, that's a tough question because that is the mystery of Mike Pence. Uh, you know, I do think that he loves this country. I will say that, he, you know, he'll exhibit that loyalty. He exhibited on January 6th. And so I think that there is a part of him where he believes his faith and I think he will do the right thing for the country, especially in this moment, I think it's critical. Now, the other hand of it is he's also very politically calculated. I mean, I have I, I know that he has been wanting that presidency for a long time. And so, uh, you know, as you, we watch him, I watch him walk this fine line where he sometimes dips his toe in the water and he calls Donald Trump out, but then he quickly retrieves. And so, uh, you know, in a testimony like this, it's behind closed doors. Why not just set the record straight and be forthcoming about everything that happened and all of the pressure that was placed on you. And and I also want to know, why didn't you want to get in that far? Yeah. Why, why were you so concerned about it? Right. But I think for him, that base is not coming back to him. 
And I don't know how many times he needs to be told that. I don't know who is advising him. Yeah. I don't know what delusional dream he's having <laughs> that these voters that he lost on January 6th are going to come back and vote for him. So why not pave a different way? And I think that is the problem, Mike Pence. He hasn't done that, uh, even though he writes in his book. But even as he's apologetic, right, he continues to be a Trump apologist over and over again, regardless of the fact that he put his family at risk, regardless of the fact that he's now going to go head on probably into 2024 against someone that he knows is a madman. He's lived this firsthand. I've seen it firsthand. But yet he still refuses to separate himself because I think he knows that that's where the Republican Party is. Yeah. And he needs them. He needs that base. Well, and, you know, the thing about grand juries is that they don't care. (laughs) And Nick Ackerman, if you right, right, if you had him, uh, you know, for, as you said, hours and hours and hours, what would you want to ask him? I mean, myself personally, I would also want to know what those Secret Service agents were saying. Did you trust those Secret Service agents? Because this could all this could be about Donald Trump, but it could also be about some of them. What would you want to know? Oh, I, I think we'd yeah, I would want to know. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, I, I think we'd want to know exactly what his suspicion was based on. I mean, why did he think they were trying to whisk him out of the Capitol so quickly? Uh, was it one of the people that was close to Donald Trump that was in charge of doing that? Did somebody say something to him? I mean, I'm sure he knew that part of this whole plot was to stop that vote, stop the Congress from considering the electoral count, uh, and that one way to do it was to get him off premises, get him out of the Capitol. Um, So I think, you know, he probably did have other conversations with people. I mean, don't forget, once Mike Pence told him there's no way, no how I'm going to do this. Donald Trump knew that the only way he was going to stop this whole count was through the violence, through the disruption and the chaos that ensued at the Capitol. Uh, And that one of the ways to do it, of course, was to get Mike Pence out of the Capitol as a result of all this violence and use the Secret Service as a foil and an excuse to do that. Um, I mean, Mike Pence is no idiot. I mean, he had to know what was going on. And he had lots of detailed conversations with Donald Trump. And that's what they're going to go through in minute detail. There is no way he can play both sides yeah. of the aisle on this thing and and try and somehow come out looking like politically okay with yeah. the base and telling the truth it just can't be done here um and i think where he's going to really have the problem is if donald trump does get indicted and he's got to show up as a witness I mean, it's going to be an amazing scene. I mean, the government calls former Vice President Pence, Mr. Pence, do you know Donald Trump? Yes. Can you point him out to the jury, please? (laughs) I mean, it's really going to be a pretty momentous occasion. First time ever in American history anything like this has ever, has ever happened. And, and, and I, I guess this is sort of my curiosity, you know, again, do you think, Olivia, based on the fact that he went to a certain extent along with it and quizzed Dan Quayle quite sincerely, you know, about whether he could actually do it, do you think if the violence hadn't happened, Mike Pence actually might have gone along with Donald Trump's plan? Gosh, I hope not. Uh, but You know, political ambition we've seen is blinding for some of these Republicans. And as much as I've wanted to have faith in some of these people where I thought that they would have the more courage to do the right thing at times, they have failed me repeatedly time and time again. And so I think, you know, a lot of these people, they do things if they think they won't get caught. And so uh, 
I mean, that's a sad statement to say about my former boss, but it's reality. Yeah. It's a sad state of affairs, indeed, for American democracy. Uh, But I appreciate both of you being here to talk us through it. Olivia Troy and Nick Ackerman, thank you both very much. And up next on The Readout, a court case being heard by an extremist Trump judge poses the single greatest threat to abortion rights since the reversal of Roe v. Wade. You will want to hear this. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. A federal judge in Texas is on the verge of deciding a case that may pose the biggest threat to abortion rights since Samuel Alito's Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In the next couple of weeks, that judge will rule on whether to reverse the FDA's decades-old approval of the abortion pill, also known as mifepristone, which could essentially ban the drug. It would essentially ban the drug nationwide. Yes, you heard that correctly. Nationwide, meaning every single state, no matter how blue or how red. The drug accounts for more than half of all abortions in this country and has been a major lifeline for those living in states with some of these strictest abortion bans. The judge who will ultimately decide the fate of this pill is a man by the name of Matthew Kazmarek, who was unsurprisingly nominated by Donald Trump. Now, just to give you some background, before joining the bench, he worked as deputy general counsel at a Christian law firm known as the First Liberty Institute. It's known for representing cases that oppose the separation of church and state and are also anti-LGBTQ. In his past writings, he has described being transgender as a mental disorder. He's called homosexuality disordered. And he has said that sexual revolutionaries had made the unborn child and marriage secondary to, quote, erotic desires of liberated adults, unquote. This past October, he struck down new guidelines from the Biden administration that protected transgender folks from workplace discrimination. And two months later, ruled that anyone under the age of 18 in the state of Texas needs approval from their parent before getting birth control from federally funded clinics. Joining me now is Senator Maisie Hirono, Democrat from Hawaii, and Wendy Davis, former state former Texas state senator and founder of Deeds Not Words. Thank you both for being here. And Senator, I do want to start with you first. 
this is a very clear example of judge shopping. Um, the Guardian wrote about the way that they wound up with this judge, and it said that you probe a bit deeper, it becomes clear why this particular court is so popular among extreme right-wing litigants. Last September, the rules of the court were amended so as to require all new civil and criminal cases to be heard by Kaczmarek, no exceptions. That means that anyone going judge shopping in Amarillo knows exactly what they're going to get. A Trump-appointed federal judge unafraid to sweep legal precedent aside and replace it with ideological conservative positions. The, 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 the real danger here is that that could also describe Samuel Alito and the other five members of the extreme right Supreme Court. So it feels like there are now two um, powerful federal courts that women that could put women's health uh, and lives in jeopardy. That's right. There have been over 200 judges appointed by, nominated by Trump. And uh, so many of them, like just Kaczmarek, have an ideological axe to grind. And they are very busy with uh, with that axe. And that is why all these cases are going before him. Uh, it, when, they, when we think about the chaos that was created by the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, that is going to be completely compounded, and I know Wendy knows this because she comes from the state where so much of this is happening. It's going to be even more compounded if this judge, with his right-wing agenda, uh, does away with, with the, the medication abortion pill. And that is going to affect totally millions and millions of women in every state, even a state like Hawaii, which was the first state in the nation to decriminalize abortion. You know, Wendy Davis, you obviously, you know, stood up and I uh, remember your pink sneakers and tried to stop uh, your state from taking away women's rights. It's gone way in the other direction. It's one of the most extreme states when it comes to uh, owning women um, the minute they're pregnant and girls, teenagers, little girls. Um, talk about what it will mean if now women can't even get this pill. Now women in states like yours would have no recourse in any state. That's exactly right, Joy. And as Senator Hirano points out, this isn't something that's just going to impact people in Texas. It will impact people in New York and California and any other state that currently allows free, unfettered access to abortion. In Texas, though, where abortion is now criminalized, it is often the only way that people can access the abortion care that they need. And as you know, um, Attorney General Merrick Garland not long ago um, put forward an administrative order basically saying that the post office can deliver these drugs without fear of any kind of retribution into states like Texas, clearing the way really for the drug to be able to be used if patients in Texas can get a doctor to prescribe it to them and send it to them there. And so this is a way clearly of trying to crack down on that. What I think is interesting about this forum shopping that we see happening with this particular judge in Amarillo is that this same thing was happening in Texas in 2018 with patent cases, where patent trolls were being given a friendly audience before the single judge in Waco to whom these cases could be assigned. And they were being filed there from all over the country until finally the Western District, where that court was, the chief judge of the Western District decreed that those cases would now be assigned through
throughout the entire Western District and not just in Waco. And I wonder if something similar could happen here. The Amarillo Court is in the Northern District of Texas. And I'd like to see if that's something we may want to consider, whether that can be um, you know, considered at the federal level by Senator Hirono and her colleagues, or whether the Northern District Chief Judge, who is a George W. Bush appointee, might consider that doing that here as well, because we are seeing a flood of these kinds of cases going to this particular judge. Now. Senator? Yes. And the, the court, as Wendy said, could decide for itself that they should distribute these cases um, in the way that she explained. But if they don't do that, then I would say that that Congress should consider stepping in and yeah. forcing a kind of distribution that will result in fair and objective rulings, which is definitely not what we have. And I just want to mention, Joy, that we have a U.S. Supreme Court that is really captive of the far right with Alito and Thomas, et cetera. But they do not even have a judicial code of ethics that applies to them. And so there are bills. We have to have bills that would force them to yeah. adopt a code of ethics, which they refuse to do so far. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, you also have a Republican Party senator who, you know, they have the, the, the VA announced that the Veterans Administration, I know you sit on the committee that oversees them, that they would offer abortions in cases of rape, incest, and when a mother's life is, is at risk. Republican lawmakers just this Wednesday reintroduced a resolution to reverse the policy using a process that would force a vote in the Senate, even though it is controlled by Democrats. You have them doing that. You have Republicans who've been lying this whole time. McConnell Mike Rounds, Chuck Grassley, Mike Lummis, Mitt Romney, Ron Johnson, all lying and saying the state should control it. We're glad that Roe is gone because it's going to be all the little laboratories and the state. They don't believe that. They all want a national ban, and it seems like they're trying to get it by any means necessary. And frankly, that's why we can't trust them on issues like uh, Medicare and Social Security either. So, uh, yes, what they're doing is they will, they will find every way to gain control. This is about power and control over a, a woman's right to bodily autonomy. That's what it is. And uh, the kind of anti-women fervor that, uh, that is uh, uh, exemplified by all of these actions by uh, the Republicans is just awesome. We have to fight back. Yeah, absolutely. And women, I mean, seriously, watch out who you're voting for. You are voting for people who view themselves as your owner. In places yes. like Texas, in some of these red states, women are voting for these people to put them in charge of your body. And now they own your body the minute you become pregnant and your daughters. Think about it before you vote. Uh, Senator Maisie Hirono and Wendy Davis, thank you very much. Still ahead, the conservative war against the teaching of black history continues to escalate as we learn more about Ron DeSantis's efforts to block AP African-American studies in Florida. We'll be right back. You know what happens when bans against black history occur during Black History Month? Confusion. Confusion over what exactly can be discussed, along with genuine anger and outrage over historical erasure. This week, nearly 300 Alabama high school students walked out of class after what they describe as racism and censorship of a black history program. Alabama News also reports that students of Hillcrest High School where 55% of students are black, were told to focus more on current black history rather than old stuff before 1970. Because 
cue the dripping sarcasm, nothing noteworthy about black people occurred before 1970, not slavery or the Civil War, integration and civil rights, none of that old stuff. School officials have denied the claim, leaving the question, so why did the students walk out? And then in Florida, otherwise known as America's sunshiniest laboratory of fascism and autocracy, the rejection of an AP African-American studies class has reached a boiling point. We are learning that the DeSantis camp complained for months about the course, while the College Board, a nonprofit organization that oversees the AP program, continues to insist that Florida's concerns did not influence any of the course revisions. Joining me now is Christina Greer, political scientist and host of The Blackest Questions, a podcast by The Grio, which is probably illegal to listen to in the state of Florida. Has the word black in it. Can't it gonna make people upset? Christina, um, t- t- what do you, as an educator yourself, as a, as a, as a, as a legal, as a scholar of, of history of, and a black history, do you make of this idea that an Alabama high school would tell high school students that they must not talk about black history that recurs before 1970? I mean, you'd miss a lot of stuff, including the civil rights movement. You know, Joy, you, we joke about the blackest questions, but, you know, as I say on the podcast, to understand black history is to understand American history. And if you don't know black history, you don't know American history. There is no way that you can detangle the contributions and the struggles and the triumphs of black people in this nation from its inception, as Nicole Hannah-Jones has so brilliantly laid out for all of us. And so, yes, we can. Why don't we just start at 1970? OK, we can take someone like Ruby Bridges, who isn't even 70 years old. Right. We can still have so much of the civil rights movement in conversations from the beginning. But we know that so much of Ron DeSantis and his ilk, because it's not just him. Uh, he's the face of it. But there's so many other governors who are tacitly in agreement. Uh, they just might wear, you know, lands and sweater vests and, and just make it a little more palatable. But they are fully on board with erasing the struggles uh, and the racism of every single policy decision that has ever been made in this nation. And it's not just about white supremacy. It's also a specific anti-blackness, as Bell Hooks has always explained to us, that has been intrinsic in every single practice and policy in this nation. If you try and erase that, you are not giving anyone the accurate picture of this right. United States, not just black people, all people in this in this country. And I think you were, you were perhaps referring to the sweater vest of Glenn Youngkin, who, who essentially has gotten you know, a huge bligh from the media and, and school, t- you know, teased as some sort of modern. No, he's not. You know, he literally ran on saying your precious child will, who is white will never have to read a book by a black person under my watch. And that makes him a what, a moderate? No, I, I want to go through just some of the book banning. Duval County, mm-hmm. Florida, which is, has a, you know, lots of black folks there. They've banned 176 books that have been removed from school. Thank you, Jackie Robinson, a story about friendship, banned. A book about Roberto Clemente, a, a baseball player, a renowned humanitarian, banned. The Life of Rosa Parks, a storm called Katrina, and a book called Dumpling Soup. These are just some of the books that have been banned. It is very hard to get around the fact that the only books that are deemed controversial by the right, by people like DeSantis, the Chris Rufos of the world, the Youngkins of the world, are books about black people, books about gay people, books about the Holocaust. Do you see where I'm going? They've never said a book about any European is controversial or will make someone upset. There have been European wars. Shakespeare's got death, demons in the Othello story. None of that to them is controversial. Only things that are about black people Jewish people and gay people. Hard to see that as a coincidence, but mostly black people. 
it's absolutely not a coincidence, Joy. And, you know, I, I've said this quote on your show several times before is, is, you know, my favorite president, LBJ, always said, you know, if you can convince the poorest white man that he's better than the Negro, then you can pick his pockets all day long. And here we are, you know, a book like Rosa Parks, what Ron DeSantis and Youngkin and Abbott are so afraid of is that, you know, as an educator, and, you know, we have talked a lot about education and the importance in our families. Both of us have roots in Florida. You know, all a good educator sparks a, a light inside of a child. We plant seeds. They might develop while we have them. They might develop months or years later. If you learn about Rosa Parks in third grade, there might be something years later where it's like, let me find out a little bit more about her. And you find out that she's not just some meek little lady who didn't give up her seat at the back of the bus. You find out that she's a rape investigator, that she actually went hard in the paint in deep parts of the deep South by herself as a brave black woman to actually investigate rapes of other black women. You find out that Hank Aaron was a humanitarian, not just a baseball player, that he actually transcended, you know, not just this racial aspect of the baseball game, but he actually fought for racial and equal justice along class lines. I mean, he was just so much more than, you know, Mr. Hank Aaron, number, what was he, 45, I think he was? Um, you know, we find out so much more about Jackie Robinson and his critiques of capitalism and how he, he was a Republican, but sparked a much larger debate within the Black community about, is Black capitalism really something that, you know, we want? How do we detangle these issues? All these uh, books that are being banned are seeds that are planted in children's minds. And we're seeing that, you know, Governor uh, DeSantis, wants to keep the state of Florida, the children in the state of Florida, as ignorant as possible so that they and their parents can keep voting for policies that actually work against them in the long run, yeah. in the short run. And, and what I would love for, you know, white parents who are tempted by this, by these bans and thinking these are good for your kids, to just interrogate for yourself. Why is it that you only are uncomfortable with books about black people, Jewish people, and LGBT? You just interrogate that for yourself. You know, that's what, that's what critical thinking is. You know, it isn't dangerous. Critical thinking is good for you. Just interrogate and think about it for yourself. You don't think of yourself as racist or a bad person, but you're uncomfortable, but you're only uncomfortable with books about black historical figures, the Holocaust and LGBT. Just ask yourself that question. I'm just asking you to ask yourself that question for Black History Month, if you still think that that's legal to do. Uh, Christina Greer, thank you. Who Won the Week is still ahead. Uh, Before we go to break, the latest installment in our new blog series, Black History Uncensored, highlights the great Richard Wright, the renowned author of Black Boy and Native Son, and a frequent target of Republican book bans. Read his feature and more on the Readout blog all month long as Jahan Jones covers the history that conservatives want to keep hidden. We'll be right back. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. 
President Biden has had a pretty darn good week, deftly exposing the unhinged nature of the MAGA party while getting them to commit to never cutting Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, even though they really want to. Oddly enough, Dark Brandon is getting some help from old school Republicans like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has launched a low key war on the insurrectionist wing of his party, which just so happened to vote against him to return to his role as minority leader. Earlier this week, Roll Call reported that fleet-footed Missouri insurrectionist Senator Josh Hawley was booted from the Armed Services Committee because of his role in challenging the boss. Guess who else got the kiss of death? Utah Senator Mike Lee, who got defenestrated from his perch over on the Commerce Committee. Lee has been having a rough week. First, Biden exposed his plan to pull Social Security up from the roots. And now this. But it was his Social Security and Medicare hating a Tea Party brother in arms, Florida Senator Rick Scott, who really ticked off Addison Mitchell McConnell. Unfortunately, that was the Scott plan. That's not a Republican plan. That was the Rick Scott plan. I mean, it's just a bad idea. Uh, I think it will be a challenge for him to deal with this in his own reelection in Florida. Ouch, as a parting gift, McConnell had the Medicare and Medicaid defrauding Floridian booted from the Commerce Committee, too. Scott isn't real happy about it. He called McConnell petty and told reporters that Mitch is backing a Biden again. <laughs> it looks like Scott won't be campaigning alongside Mitch in 2024 when Rick Scott is up for re-election. Joining me now is Hayes Brown, writer and editor for MSNBC Daily, and Jeremy Peters, New York Times correspondent and author of Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. Well, that means I got to start with you, uh, Jeremy. I mean, the thing about it is, is... The Mitch McConnells of the world were willing to use the MAGA Republicans and the Tea Party before them to get more power because they know white working class voters are going to vote for them and that, yay, they win. It does seem like they're sick of them now and they want them out. It's a reminder of who the Republican Party really was under the pre-Trump regime, right? So Mitch McConnell was always somebody who wanted to cut spending and, in fact, wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare before it became unpopular under Donald Trump. Now they have decided that they just reject that and they're becoming a more populist party. Their true colors are showing joy. And I think that what you really have when it boils down to it is a situation where Mitch McConnell and the Republicans of, you know, the, the Mitt Romney type, the John McCain type, the George Bush type don't really understand their party anymore. They don't understand. Yeah, they don't understand. The, I mean, the thing about it is the base of the party elected George Santos, right? The base of the party elected Marjorie Greene. The base of the party, I mean, this would, she, this week she did a, a screaming hearing where she just chewed people out and yelled and screamed. It's embarrassing to them. Like, they wanted Trump, but they didn't want him to act like Trump. Just act differently. But they do, they don't disagree on policy. I mean, Mitch McConnell blames candidate quality for losing the 2020. He is equally to blame. He put together the Supreme Court that got rid of Roe. That's why they lost. Absolutely. But that, I feel like, is more delivering on Republican promises. They've been saying for a long time that's what they want to do. Social Security, Medicare, they've been lying about yes. for <laughs> the last 20 years. So that's yeah. the big difference. McConnell, he lived through the George W. Bush privatization fight. He yeah. knows how much backlash can come when you actually say what it is that you're trying to do. So before Scott put out his, what, rest plan to rest 
Rescue America uh, last February. McConnell was content just let Democrats ride this out on their own, just be like, Biden's unpopular, we'll sit back and just let the Democrats implode. But then Scott, who wants to show leadership and yeah. gumption and all of these things so that he can eventually and who replace wants to become president. And he wants to become president or Senate Majority Leader, whichever gives him power in the short term, is like, no, we need to show leadership. We need to show what we're going to do. And it has come back to bite him. So I feel like McConnell still gets that things that people will, he still gets what people won't vote for. Right. He still has the same policy, still has the same principles, but he also knows what to abandon if it won't help them win back the Senate. You know, to me, I feel like the original sin, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a broken record, I apologize to my staff for this, is the Tea Party. I mean, Mike Lee's a Tea Partier. Yeah. Rick Scott is a Tea Partier. Ron DeSantis is a Tea Party. These were all the tea, the people who swept in in that Tea Party wave in 10 and 14. Mm-hmm. And they loved having them there because they excited that same group of voters. But now that they're there and they have power, they actually want to continue to do the things that they came in on. And getting rid, Mike Lee said it in 2010, I want to pull Social Security and Medicare up by the roots. They all want to do that. Right. They just know that it will be an electoral loser. Like, I don't know, get Getting rid of abortion rights. Well, remember the famous sign, keep your government hands off my social security. (laughs) It was a Tea Party rallying cry. You know, and that just shows that like it there's such there's no ideological consistency here. It's whatever wins them elections. And that's what Mitch McConnell has, you know, he's been very good at over the years, aligning himself with the Trump Republicans, aligning himself with aligning himself with the Tea Party. But it, it, you know, at a certain point, that kind of hollowness runs its course. And I feel like there are certain there are certain of them that I think chafe more under the hollowness. And I feel like Mitt Romney is that guy. I mean, Mitt Romney's father was a legend. He was actually a really great governor of Michigan, a great man in, in many ways. And I think he feels that he is lesser in a way. And he's starting to try to come back from his humiliation, the Trump dinner and all of that. Now, like he went after Santo, like yeah. he is stronger than Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy on that. What do you think his game plan is? So I think his game plan is I really think that Mitt Romney at this point is con- going to be content to be a senator for as long as he can. I don't yeah. I think that part of the problem where you have your Cruises, your Hollies, your Scots, they are constantly looking ahead to what their next office is going to be, looking at the White House for for most of them. Uh, but Mitch McConnell the reason why he has been so you know steady because he doesn't want anything else yeah. but to be Senate Majority Leader. That's yeah. what he's always wanted. Yeah. Mitt Romney, I think, at this point, is like, I just am going to be the best senator possible. Yeah. So you have Mitt Romney, who is someone who actually tries to get legislation passed. Yeah. Uh, I don't agree with all of it usually, but I, he at least is there to legislate. Unlike, say, uh, your Scotts, Hollies, etc. McConnell, he's not there to legislate either, no. but he at least knows how to win national elections. He knows how to strategize. He knows how to put together a, a sort of agenda or yeah. lack thereof yeah. to help the Republicans keep a majority. Yeah, I, I think Mitt Romney wants his reputation. I, I get the sense he's, he, I don't know him at all, but he, he, he strikes me as somebody who would want his reputation. So we have a lot coming, we have a lot, we, we have Who of the Week coming up, but I'm going to preview it uh, by getting you guys' take on who you want to win the Super Bowl and how <laughs> big of a deal. I'm going to start with you first with Black History Month. Uh, we have two black quarterbacks. Uh, who are you going for and which of the two quarterbacks do you want to take on the ring? I'm going to complete the bailness and quote Issa Rae. I'm rooting for everyone black. Everybody black. Everybody black. Same, so am I. I'm rooting for Philly, but I'm rooting for everybody black. But I like Mahomes too, but Mahomes already has a ring. Like yeah. I'm trying, I, you know, I got to say, okay, I got to go for Philly. But who are you going for? So my dad's from Kansas City and he would disown me if I didn't say Kansas City. Oh, okay. Well, I'm rooting for Rihanna. <laughs> that's all most of us care about. And we're going to watch that. And we hope that whoever wins is going to be somebody black. We're excited. Black History Month, everybody. It's still legal. Hayes and Jerry. 
Murphy are going to stick around to help us kick off the weekend with who won the week. That is next. Black. All right, y'all, we made it to the end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Here's the sound we love. Who won the week? Back with me are Hayes Brown and Jeremy Peters. Hayes Brown, who won the week? I got to say, Joe Biden, it's an easy layup. I got to say it. I mean, I was prepared to be kind of bored watching State of the Union this year. And the fact that I was surprisingly entertained throughout and the fact watching him do his little judo against the Republicans. Shout out to Joe Biden for actually managing to nail that and nail them and have a really good flowing speech because Biden's not really known for his no. soaring oratory. Yeah. It was a nuts and bolts speech, but one that kept me engaged throughout. You know, you know why it was so good? Because he didn't give the speech. Dark Brandon gave the speech. Mm, he Dark channeled. Brandon was in the hate channel. Dark Brandon. All right, Jeremy Peterson won the week. Well, I know it's obvious. Yes, Joe Biden. And <laughs> it's because he showed us what the Republican Party really is. Yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene heckling Laura Brobert heckling. It was just chaos and uncontrolled anger and and, and venom. Um, And he played on that really, really well. And I think laid out a very clear contrast. Well, if you want policy. Yeah. And, you know, let's face it, his policies, the American people are not yet sold on. Yeah. He's got low approval ratings. But but next to that. Next to that cuckooness. Okay, well, I I like both of those choices. But I am going to go for fashion. I am going to fashion week. I'm going to be going to the the, the Sukana show, Omar Salam. Big ups to him. The Sergio Hudson show this weekend. Black fashion is killing it in the United States. These are brilliant young designers and they're going to be showing out of fashion week and I will be there. Thank you, Hayes Brown and Jeremy Peters. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.